Good morning. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Mighty God in heaven, as we have sung, we pray again that you, uh, that your kingdom would come. Father in heaven, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray for you to exercise your mighty sovereign will among us. Lord, as we, as we consider what you have recorded for us in the scriptures, we pray that your word would be, as you say, living and active among us today bringing to us the life of Christ. We look to him and we ask, in, we ask for you to bring more of him to us now. Amen. Amen. I wonder how you mark the arrival of the new year. Um, everyone has different traditions. Uh, if you were in Denmark, I think you would have been smashing plates on porches. Um, is that right? You haven't heard that, apparently. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, you might have been doing that. Um, I didn't do that. Um, I marked the new year by watching The Karate Kid, the original, of course, and then being safely tucked up in bed by midnight. It was wonderful. Um, but it's here now, isn't it? 2024. And what will it hold for us? Now, when I sat down at my computer this week, I started putting things into the calendar, making plans for the coming year. I wonder what your plans are for 2024. Uh, this morning, our text is... Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, uh, which says, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow. Uh, and I want to suggest that this is a brilliant plan for our new year. And it is, um, it's an invitation for us to align our plans with the greatest plan. Because uh, what will 2024 hold? There are all kinds of plans. Um, this summer, there is an Olympic Games planned in Paris. Um, uh, the opening ceremony, I'm told, is planned to be the largest ever in history. It will stretch across the whole city of Paris. It will be watched by billions of people. And, and during the ceremony, the key moment which marks the start of the Games is when the final torchbearer um, lights the cauldron of fire. Was it Barcelona where they had the lighted arrow? Remember that? I love that. I don't know what they've got planned for Paris. Um, but imagine you, you go home this afternoon, you get a phone call from um, Thomas Jolly. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, Jolly Thomas. Uh, he is the artistic director for the opening ceremony. Um, and, and he calls you up and he says, I've got a part for you to play, an essential part for you in the ceremony. Uh, I want you to be that final torchbearer. Imagine that. Imagine it, the biggest event on the world stage, loaded with history, captivating the attention of the nations, um, watched by billions of people. And the center of the ceremony, he says, it's a, there's a part for you to play, an essential bit for you to do in this moment. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? It's not going to happen. Sorry to burst the bubble very quickly. Uh, Thomas Jolly, he doesn't know you, doesn't want you to be involved. Um, but the Olympic Games is not the most important thing happening in 2024. Now, however important Thomas Jolly might be, uh, we're going to think this morning about someone who is so much more important and is responsible for doing something so much greater than the Olympic Games. Uh, we might ask, what are your plans for 2024? But more importantly, we want to ask, what are Christ's plans for 2024? Uh, the book of Ephesians is a letter written by Paul to a church that met in the city of Ephesus. And as he writes this letter, he begins with a, an explosion. Uh, the, the first chapter of Ephesians is, is, is mesmerizing, overwhelming. It's, 
it's overwhelming because the subject is overwhelming. And as Paul sits down to write, he, he celebrates that God has a plan for everything. And God's plan for everything, he says in chapter 1, verse 10, his purpose is to bring unity in all things, in heaven and on earth, under Christ. And you don't really need to know what that means to know that it means that Christ is spectacularly important. Christ is the beloved son of God who became man uh, so that he could pour out his blood on the cross. And then, and this is the end of Ephesians chapter 1, then it says God exerted his mighty strength when he raised Christ from the dead. And not just raised him from the grave, uh, but raised him to the place of power. This is what it says at the end of Ephesians 1. That God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Paul is kind of grasping for words as he's writing this, trying to express the supreme power of the risen Christ. You see, Christ is positioned in his resurrected manhood as the ultimate authority in all the universe and in all eternity. There is no power like the power of Jesus. And then verse 22 continues. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. This is God's plan. It's been his plan from the beginning. It was promised in the Old Testament. It's been fulfilled in the New Testament uh, and it's all about what God wants to do with Jesus. Uh, God's plan for everything is for Jesus to be Lord of all. Jesus Christ who is infinitely more important than poor old Thomas Jolly. Uh, Christ who is doing something inexpressibly more wonderful than planning the opening ceremony for the Olympic Games. And if we pick up in verse 22 there on the screen, we, we hear something that really should just take our breath away. As Paul says, Christ has all this power, this unimaginable power. He shows them what he uses his power for. Christ, who is appointed to be head over everything for the church. For the church. People who put their faith in Christ. That's the church. The church, which the next verse says, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way the church is the fullness of christ full of christ that's what the church is full of christ a christian a christian means christ's ones those who belong to christ who are bound up to him by the spirit who are full of him the church is full of christ and christ is the one who fills everything in every way and come into Ephesians 2 and it tells us that the church is growing, it's being built upon Christ. You come into Ephesians 3 and it tells us that, that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God to the spiritual powers in the heavenly realms. Now see, they see what we don't yet see. Now this church in Ephesus was, well it just looked like an ordinary group of people. Uh, a bit jaded, a bit grumpy, and needing to bear with one another. Are people who were in, in ordinary family situations, in ordinary workplaces, just like any other church like us today. And we don't yet see the glory. But the spiritual powers see with spiritual sight and they look at the church and they marvel at the massive wisdom of God. And then Ephesians 4 tells us that Christ is giving everything needed for the church to grow into his fullness. 
This is what Christ is doing. It's what Christ will be doing in 2024. He will be growing his church. And it is bigger than the Olympics. It's the purpose of God in all history. It captivates the attention of the heavenly realms. Church growth is the beginning of eternity. And whilst, no, poor old Thomas Jolly, I'm not doing him very much service today. Poor old Thomas Jolly, he doesn't know you or want you involved in the Olympics, but Jesus Christ does know you. And he's also made contact with us, and in his word he's put it down, and we find in his word that the Lord Christ has an essential part for you to play in the growing of his church. Because this is how Christ plans to grow his church, is there, Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. We will grow. Grow to what? Well, verse 15 goes on and says, to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. This is what Christ is doing. Christ is growing his church into his fullness. You see the logic of this in verse 15? is very straightforward, isn't it? You could ask, how does a plant grow? Well, for a plant to grow, it needs to have some sunlight and some water and some nutrients, doesn't it? We know that. There are things that are needed in order for the plant to grow. Well, we ask the same question. What does a church need to grow with the growth that Christ seeks? And it's right there, isn't it? By speaking the truth in love. In 2024, this is an invitation for us to align our plans with Christ's plans. It's an invitation for us to play an essential part in something spectacularly important. Uh, I wonder what you make of that as you sit here this morning, personally. And do you feel the, the draw of an invitation like this? Or, or, or is it a bit like kind of junk mail that comes through your, dark, your door that is quickly forgotten in the recycling? Now, we need to ask a bit more about it, don't we? Now, what is this speaking the truth in love? Well, well I think first we'll note that and as, as Paul wrote this, he wasn't writing in English and he wrote in Greek and he didn't say speaking. What it says is truthing, truthing in love. Uh, I'm not sure that's a real word in English, um, which is why our translations don't put it in there. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it's a vulgar expression, but I quite like it. Truthing in love. There's, there's something to that. Isn't it? it captures something. Truthing is it's broader than just speaking. It's not less than speaking, but it includes every way we engage in getting across Truth, truthing in love. And, and I, think, I think this is often quite misunderstood. I think I've, I've misunderstood it many times. I think I've always kind of assumed that, that this means that, that saying really hard things, but in a nice way. No, no, if your friend has bad breath, you want to tell them the truth, they've got bad breath, but you're going to do it in a kind of friendly voice and with a bit of a smile, aren't you? Because we've got a truth in love, don't we? And when I was at school, I had a French teacher called Mr. Boyington, and he had the unfortunate nickname of B.O. Boyington. Um, and uh, some students, not me, um, some students uh, at one point decided to give him a present of some deodorant to tell him the truth, to communicate the truth. It wasn't done in love, and they got in big trouble for it. Is that what this means here when it talks about this truthing in love? Now, now, now why do we kind of assume this is what... Why do I assume that truth and love are kind of opposite things that have to be balanced? Assume that truth is something hard and cruel, and if we leave it on its own, it's just going to hurt. So we have to wrap it up in love to protect us. You know, like um, 
Mary Poppins and a spoonful of sugar helping the medicine go down. You've got to have the medicine, but it's nasty and bitter. So, you, so that's like the truth is it's nasty and bitter, but you need it. And so you have a bit of sugar to kind of, to kind of help it go down. We ease it with sugary love. No, 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 where, where do we get those ideas from that, that the truth and love are, are in contrast? Uh, more importantly, of course, uh, what was Paul thinking when he wrote about truthing in love? What was he thinking? Well, first of all, note that verse 14 gives a negative and then verse 15 gives a positive counterpart. Verse 14 says, then we will no longer be infants. We won't be childish. And what he means by that, he says, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. A kind of childish faith Paul's describing is like a, a baby crawling around on the floor and just shoving anything into their mouth, whatever they can find, whether it's good for them or bad for them. Paul, a childish faith is kind of believing anything and then being susceptible to being blown off course. And Paul says instead of that, that childish faith, the church is called to grow up, verse 15, grow into what is true. Because this truth that Paul writes about is what the church is. The truth that Paul has been concerned with in this letter. And you have to wonder, you know, if we do still have that kind of idea that speaking truth in love is about saying unpleasant things in, in a kind of nice way, that the truth is like that kind of medicine that is a bit bitter, now how does that work out with the truth that Paul has put in this letter so far? No, no, what if the case is that the truth that grows the church is what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, the truth that God has blessed us, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now what if the truth was that in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins? What about the truth at the end of chapter 1 that God worked an incomparably great power for us who believe? The same power he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. What about the truth you find in chapter 2? In chapter 2, that we were once dead in our sins, but now we're made alive in Christ and we're saved by, by, by grace and it's, and it's by faith and it's not about anything we do, it's not by works. Or, or the second half of chapter 2 that tells us that once we were without hope and we were without God and, uh, and we were far away, but now, but now in Christ Jesus we've been brought near by his blood. Brought so near that we've been brought together and together we've been brought to God as our Father. Or the truth in chapter 3, that our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now what was Paul thinking when he wrote about truthing in love? I think in chapter 113 he puts it most plainly. Chapter 113 he says, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. This is the message of truth that he's concerned with. The gospel of your salvation. That's the truth that grows the church. The good news that God has saved us. This is the truth that is sweet to the taste and it's comfort to the soul and it's strength to the heart. This is the truth that sounds out uh, the sound of hope and freedom and life. Now this truth, chapter 421, is the truth that is in Jesus. All the saving blessings of God come to us in Jesus. He is our salvation and our redemption and our forgiveness and our hope and our life and our rescue and our raising and our eternity. Everything, everything is all found in Jesus and he's given to save us. Jesus Christ is the truth, the saving truth. He's the best truth. 
A true thing in love is directing one another to the good news of Jesus. Well, what about the in love bit, though? Maybe, maybe it's the Paul saying in love, which is why we think the truth might be harsh and has to be softened because it has to be given in love. Well, again, I think we want to ask, what was Paul thinking when he wrote in love? In um, The Karate Kid, um, there's a scene towards the end. It's a wonderful story about a friendship between old Mr. Miyagi and young Daniel. And towards the end, uh, Mr. Miyagi gives Daniel a car. It's a wonderful moment of, of grace, expressing all the grace of their friendship. And as Daniel drives away in his new car, uh, they shout to each other, Banzai. That's what they're shouting back and forth. Uh, which I looked up, uh, literally it means 10,000 years. It's a, it's a battle cry, meaning kind of invincibility. And yet in the film, we're introduced to the word Banzai much earlier at what is probably the most intimate moment in this growing friendship, when some deep sorrows and sadnesses are, are shared together and the friendship deepens to another level. And at that moment, that's when they first say Banzai to each other. And we carry that meaning that comes from the background so that when we hear it later on, when they're shouting in the cars, it's not a kind of battle cry. It's a celebration of the friendship that they have together. Uh, I might be overthinking the karate kid. I don't know. Um, but in Ephesians 4.15, when Paul writes about truthing in love, we want to carry into that what he's already said about in love. And what's he already said about love? Well, in chapter 1, he's told us that God loves us in Christ. He's told us in chapter 1, in love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. God's great love was turned to us from all eternity for our good, and it comes to us in Christ. Christ, who is described as the one he loves, the beloved one. That's who Christ is. All of heaven's infinite and eternal love is loaded and directed onto Christ and he bears the full weight of that original love. It's constantly, those infinite oceans of love are constantly poured onto Christ. And God's purpose for us is to put us with Christ. So we're drenched in that flow. And you turn into chapter 2 and it kind of twists the dial a bit and brings the, this love into sharper relief as it, as it tells the story of every believer in chapter 2. It tells that all of our stories that once we were dead in our sins and we lived for ourselves and we followed the powers of this world and we were, were blinded and we had these, these sinful desires and, and we deserved God's anger. And then chapter 2 verse 4 says, but because of this, that it's going to tell us now where all of our hope is found. And we were so utterly lost beyond all recovery. We were so dead we didn't even know it. And we were pummeling into a lost eternity. We, we were hopeless with a capital H. But then something intervened. Something happened. Something broke into our darkness and our rebellion. And the thing is this. But because of his great love for us. Or as the English Standard Version says. Because of the great love with which he loved us. God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Now, this is love. This great love. This great love that reached to us in Christ and saved us from our sin. This great love that, that lavished on us the incomparable riches of grace and kindness to us in Christ. More love than we could ever imagine possible. Now, more love than we could ever imagine. So that's why Paul prays for it in chapter 3. In chapter 3 he writes down his prayer 
And he says this, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So you see, when when we reach chapter 4, verse 15, and it speaks about truthing in love, uh, in love isn't so much about how we speak it, it's the, the what we're speaking. It's truthing in this sphere of love, truthing within the inexpressible dimensions of love. That this love in which believers are rooted and established, this, this love which is more than we're able to know, this, this is the same love that defines Christ as beloved. The great love with which God has loved us, a mercy-filled love, a life-giving love, an eternity-defining love. Now, the good news of our salvation is that God loves us in Christ. The truthing in love is directing one another towards the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how the church will grow. True thing in love, we will grow. So, let's do it. Let's be true thing in love and trusting that we will grow. In 2024, this verse invites us to play an essential part in something spectacularly important. And, and yet, it'd be easy for us to kind of leave it somewhere hanging around as a kind of catchphrase. It doesn't really catch anything. Now, if we're going to take this invitation seriously, we probably need to think a bit more concretely about what it actually means for us. And to help us do that this morning, I'm going to give a number of questions to, just to help us think that through. It, it could be that one of these things just stands out particularly for you Uh, And and the Lord is signaling that that's something for you to take on into this year and consider. Uh, First of all, first question. Uh, Will you prioritize being at church on a Sunday? Now, we're we're thinking about truthing in love. And there's a load of things we might want to say about uh, meeting together on a Sunday and a load of caveats we might want to put in. But I want us to focus today on, on, on putting into practice this truthing in love. So how does this relate to truthing in love? Well, well, I think it's this. You can't pour in, you can't pour out what's not been poured in. An empty watering can won't do the plants any good. It has to spend time being filled up at the tap. And this is exactly what we see in verses 11 and 12. If you're able to glance at chapter 4, 11 and 12, you see that, that, that Christ is giving something to grow the church. It tells us Christ is giving people with responsibility for the word of God. Christ gives apostles and prophets, which is meant here as those who establish what goes into the Bible. And Christ gives evangelists, who are those who spread the word to where it's not been heard before. And he also gives pastor teachers who are given to teach the word of God to the church. And all of this is is, is for the purpose in verse 12. The purpose is to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. And it's important we follow this. See, in the local church, Christ gives pastor teachers whose job it is to teach the word so that everyone in the church is equipped for the works of service that build the body. And those works of service we've been seeing in verse 15 are truthing in love. See, see how that flows? That Christians can only be truthing in love if they're feeding on the truth. 
and so in 2024, what importance will you give to receiving what Christ has given? Uh, being a church to hear the Bible preached, and we have two opportunities each Sunday to do that. Uh, being a church to hear the Bible preached is the main way Christ equips you. Not the only way, but the, the main way he equips you for this. So will you be here? Now, how will that shape your plans for 2024? Next question. Will you prioritize being with believers during the week? Verse 12 speaks of works of service. The English Standard Version translates it as works of ministry. Who does the ministry in the church? It's not the minister. Those who do the ministry in the church is all Christ's people. In verse 15, we've been looking at it. Who, is those, who are those who are truthing in love? It's not the select few. It is all Christ's people. If you belong to Christ, you are invited and called to a ministry of truthing in love. We can only do that if we spend time with one another. So in 2024, will you deliberately put yourself in places where you can do what Christ has given you to do? Will you spend time with other believers? But those are kind of initial things, aren't they? They're kind of background things, preparation type things. So when we are with each other, what does truthing in love look like? You know, I reckon it looks like all kinds of different things. There are so many different shapes and sizes uh, to, to what it means. And, and we could even say, well, well, if we want to model, now how does Paul do it in this letter to the Ephesians? Now, how is he truthing in love? And that brings me to my next question is, will you invest in your praise life and your prayer life? You, you see, see, Paul writes to this church and he is truthing in love. And how he does it, he begins... But it says, he's writing in Greek, in a, and he begins with a massively long sentence celebrating truth. As he begins the letter, he sits down and he writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He doesn't start by telling them to praise. He draws them in by doing it. He's truthing in love. When we celebrate the goodness of the gospel together, we are truthing in love. And we've already been doing it together this morning. One of the most natural ways to do it is to sing together. Uh, later in the letter, Paul talks about that in chapter 5 when he says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our praising together helps others to praise. Now, our praise life is a way of truthing in love. Uh, but this letter also contains two long prayers. Paul writes out what he prays for them. And the first one comes in chapter 1, where he prays that the believers will know the truth better. And then the second one comes in chapter 3, where he prays the believers will grasp more of Christ's love. His very prayers are about truthing in love. So as we consider how we might pray in 2024, these two prayers in Ephesians are a, a great way to commit to pray for one another that we will be truthing in love. And then fourthly, will you take opportunities to speak about Jesus? Now, in this letter, Paul does this in so many ways. He speaks about Jesus all the way through it. He does it by, by reminding them of their story. He does it again and again, keeps, keeps reminding them of, of where they came from and what God has done for them in Christ and where that, that means they are now. 
He does it mostly in chapter 2, where the first half of the chapter, he reminds them that that God in love has rescued them from death to life in Christ. And, And then the second half of the chapter, he reminds them how God has rescued them from being strangers and aliens and separated and far by gathering them together to be a family. Drop my thing, stop waving your hands. Um, he keeps talking about Christ, reminding them um, of, of what God has done for them. And, and, and even when he gets to, the, if you know Ephesians, you know the second half of the letter has lots of practical instructions for living. Um, he, he begins chapter 4 by saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. But as he gives the instructions, he keeps bringing it back to Jesus. If you take a little bit of time to read through chapters 4 to 6, you'll see that, that as these practical instructions for living are laid out, they're always related back to Christ. He's always pointing them back to Christ. He keeps talking about Christ. He is truthing in love. There's a real kind of simplicity to this model. that The model is being under God's word and among God's people and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Rebecca Penrose's prayer, isn't it? Always, every time she ends her letters, her missionary prayer letters, she always says, pray that we'll keep our eyes on Jesus. This is it. Under God's word, among God's people, fixing our eyes on Jesus. But we we need one another for this. We need one another to keep truthing us, to keep directing us towards the love of Christ. When, when chapter 4, verse 14 speaks about being tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, that's not a hypothetical situation. That's describing how things are right now for us here in this room and for those around us. All of us, we are bombarded by lies. And when we gather together, those lies ring in our ears and they insulate our hearts from the truth. There's so many lies around us. We go out into the world and the world tells us you can be anything you want just as long as you work harder and do a bit better. You can do anything. We hear that lie everywhere. It comes to us in so many ways and it cripples us. It ties us up in knots and then it closes us with shame when we fall short of it. It rings in our ears and it insulates our hearts and the gospel pierces through and says, no, that is wrong. It is by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. We need to hear this. We need to be saying to one another, you don't have to work harder or to do better to be safe. You don't have to, to kind of climb up a ladder in order to get to God's love. God has come right down to us. You don't have to do more. It's been done in Christ. It's a gift of his love. Now, all of us, all of us need those around us to be speaking of Jesus. And you see, sometimes that tossing back and forth by every wind of teaching isn't about what we're hearing from outside. It's about what we're producing ourselves. A truthing in love to one another asserts that there is something more real than what we are thinking or feeling. You see, sometimes it's our own thinking that recoils from the gospel. Sometimes our own thinking is arguing us out of it. It's our own thinking that says you cannot be loved. And and I'm going to reason it out. It's our own monologue inside of us that reasons it out and says, no, think about the awful things you've done. Think about those vile thoughts you've had. Only a vile person could produce those vile things. You must be vile. You you cannot be loved. It's just a clear-sighted logic. It's our own reasoning that goes round and round. Sometimes it can cut even deeper. It's our our own own thinking says, well, think about what others have done to you. Think how you have been treated by others. Think about how they have harmed you. Surely that tells you that you cannot be loved. 
Other times it's not our thinking and operation, it's just our feelings rebelling against the truth. We get swamped with our terrors, we get overwhelmed with our weakness and our wretchedness and we don't feel any love at all. And we need the word, the word that is more sure than our thinking or our feeling. The truth that is Christ and that God loved me in Christ even when I was a hell-deserving sinner. He loved me when I was against him with every fibre of my being. He loved me even when there weren't any fibres to my being. And we need the word of truth. We need the gospel of our salvation that speaks a better word than our inner monologues. We need a word of grace and mercy and redemption and the truth about a hope and a future. The truth that is Christ. And we need brothers and sisters to put that to us. And more often than we admit, we need help. We need brothers and sisters to put it to us. We can't grasp it on our own. No, none of us really knows the tossing back and forth that goes on inside those next to us. So so just imagine if in 2024, imagine if all of us resolved that at least once a week we will remind another Christian of the truth, the gospel of our salvation. We, We will remind another believer, we'll find a way to remind another believer that though we once were dead in our sins, because of the great love with which God has loved us, he's made us alive in Christ. We'll find an opportunity to say to a Christian, you're saved by grace. Not about what you do, it's about what Christ has done, and that is enough. Because truthing in love, we will grow. So we take opportunities to speak Jesus to one another. And we need this. All of us need this. We don't know what the year ahead will hold. No, for some of us, 2024 will be our last year. And we might not reach the end of it. We don't know that, do we? We don't know who that might be. And if that should be the case, I wonder if we would be ready. If that should be the case for someone else, would we have helped them to be ready? Because it's truthing in love that gets us ready. It's the truth in love that we find in Ephesians that tells us about a redemption that comes by the blood of Christ, through whom our sins are forgiven. And so that for those who are trusting in Christ, we will be presented into the presence of God, holy and blameless. Imagine it. To be utterly pure, led into the presence of utter purity, based on the free gift of grace, drawing deeply from that grace that has been lavished on us, with the guarantee of our inheritance now claimed. And then as we pass from this life into the next, as believers in Jesus, we pass out of the shadows. We pass into the full experience of the kindness of Christ. We pass into the incomparable riches of grace to be explored forever and ever. We pass into high definition love. We pass into the place where we will see Jesus. I wonder if we're ready for that. Will we be truthing in love so that we are ready for that moment? John Newton famously wrote a hymn for a new year called Amazing Grace, which is very famous. He also wrote another hymn, another new year, which isn't so famous. And in this other hymn, he asks if at the start of the year we are ready for it to be our last. And and these are the words from the last verse of that hymn. And we'll finish with this. He says, If from guilt and sin set free, by the knowledge of thy grace, welcome then the call will be, to depart and see thy face. To thy saints, while here below, 
with new years, new mercies come, but the happiest year they know is their last, which leads them home. Let's take a moment of quiet and then we'll pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great Son, the beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is everything. And we pray that you would assist us and help each of us uh, to be following his instruction, to be truthing in love so that we might grow as he said. Amen. We are going to do some truthing in love as we sing um, a song which is based upon the opening to Ephesians 1. Uh, Come praise and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ he has in heavenly realms his blessings on us all, all to the praise of his glory.